Good morning. It's good to be back here at Midway this morning. We had a wonderful uh, campaign trip. We'll talk a little bit more about that this afternoon. I do appreciate the fact that you allowed us to be away. We are glad to be here back at Midway this morning. One thing that I do want to mention is that tonight, following the, the service, we have, need to have a meeting for all those who plan on going to the, camp, uh, to the uh, uh, family camp, get my events all straightened out here. All folks who are planning on going with us to the family camp, it's coming up really, really quick. We'll be doing that on July the 14th. And so if you're planning on being with us, we'll meet tonight down in the classroom where I teach on Sunday morning for just a few minutes to nail some things down in regard to that. Hope that you'll plan on going. If you haven't been before, talk to some of the folks who have been. I think you'll find out that we do have a wonderful time. It's sort of laid back. You get to relax a little bit, but we do study from God's Word, and we do learn some things that are hopefully very helpful to us as we, as we go through our lives. As we begin our lesson this morning, I want you to understand that the church in Corinth was a very troubled church. You begin reading in chapter number 1 of the book of 1 Corinthians, and you'll find that the Apostle Paul has to write to them. One of the first things that he addresses is some division that they have within the church. Some folks were saying, well, I'm following Paul, and some saying, I'm following Apollos, and some saying, I'm following Peter, and some, you know, they went after some other preacher, and so Paul has to correct some of that. Chapter number 3, he speaks about their worldliness. These folks were so worldly-minded that the apostle says, I'm having a hard time even talking to you about spiritual things, and they had to correct those things. If you go to chapter number 6, what you'll find is that the church there was, again, divided against one another, but they were taking one another to court. They, they couldn't solve their problems, they couldn't work out their differences, and so they sued one another in the public courts. And so... Paul addresses that in chapter number 7. The Apostle Paul has to write concerning some questions that they have in regard to marriage. They, they had a misunderstanding about marriage. And, and so Paul had to straighten some things out in regard to that. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, the folks there at Corinth, they, they had spiritual gifts. They were living in the days of the miraculous and, and the apostles had imparted some gifts to them and, and they weren't satisfied with the ones that they had. Some of them thought that some of them were better and because they didn't get it, they, they had been shorted. And so the apostle Paul has to deal with that. He also noted that they needed a lesson on love. In chapter 13, in the midst of that discussion in regard to the miraculous gifts, he, he reminds them about their uh, need for love. In chapter 15, the, the church at Corinth, or at least some of them, had, had come to a misunderstanding and perhaps even quit believing in the resurrection. And so Paul has to address the matter of the resurrection, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, and he also addresses our own bodily resurrection there in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And so... The, the, the problems, the, the things that were going on in Corinth prompted God to have the Apostle Paul to write a letter to the church. One of the things that we skipped over is found in chapter number 5, and, and it deals with a particular instance in the church at Corinth where there was a man who was sinning. By the time you read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, and I want us to go back this morning and, and, and I want us to look at it. I want us to see 
exactly what God has to say. If you have your Bible, you may want to open it up. I do have the verses on the screen this morning. The Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. He said, English Standard Version rendering of it, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul addresses the matter in the midst of all of the other things that was going on within the church at Corinth. Paul had come upon a situation that had to be acted upon. The reason for that is because there was an intolerable act, and not only an intolerable act, but an inappropriate attitude among the church, among the Christians, the people of God there at Corinth. You see, the intolerable act that was going on is a man had an incestuous, adulterous, immoral relationship with his stepmother. And the people there knew about it, and they recognized that. Now, the Apostle Paul says not even the pagans allowed something like that to go on. If you research history, the Greek culture had a law against matters such as this. The Romans themselves, they had a law against matters such as this, and yet the church there was allowing it to go on. If you go back to the book of Leviticus chapter 18, at verse number 8, God himself, in the law of Moses under the Old Testament, he had addressed matters of this nature. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse number 8, God said, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. He says this is an intolerable act. Now, in Leviticus chapter 18, he addresses a man having a relationship, a sexual relationship with his mother, but maybe mother had died. And, and maybe, you know, under the Old Testament law, a father not only had uh, married uh, a person's mother, but he'd also married another woman. There, there was polygamy that was practiced in the Old Testament. And so a father's wife did not necessarily mean that a man was having a sexual relationship with his mother. Again, that's addressed in verse 7, but verse 8 addresses the matter that we're looking at here in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so the Greeks were against it, the Romans were against it, both of those were pagan, but God himself said, this is not a matter that needs to go on either. As a matter of fact, it was against God's law in the Old Testament. And so it was an intolerable act, but it also prompted an inappropriate attitude among the church at Corinth. I don't know exactly how the folks there at Corinth had acted, their, their attitude that they have, but I know what Paul says. He says, you're arrogant. They were puffed up, depending upon which translation you're reading from. And by that, it seems to indicate that these people had the attitude in their day that's much like the attitude that happens in our own day. You know that attitude of tolerance. You know, if it's not hurting me, then you go right ahead and, and carry on. Who am I to be in your business? kind of thing. And even more than that, it also seems to indicate that, that these people 
were sort of proud that they had the idea that they were so tolerant, that they were willing to look and to see this sinful action going on and, and allow it among themselves. Paul says you're arrogant. Maybe they had thought, like many had thought in that day, what the Apostle Paul addresses in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. You remember there, the Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers the question and says, By no means. If you're reading from the King James Version, God forbid. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? And so they may have thought because of their Christian liberty it was okay to allow certain things to go on to tolerate, to be a tolerable kind of society. But God says it was an intolerable act and you have an inappropriate attitude because you are arrogant in the situation. But he also raises a question there in verse number 2. He says, should you not have mourned? Should you not have mourned? When you saw this event take place, when you saw the action that's being carried on in your very midst, should you not have mourned? That word mourned there indicates exactly what you probably think about it. It is a term that's very often used in relationship to a person who has lost a loved one. A person who who has died. When we, when we see someone who has lost a loved one, or when we lose a loved one, we shed tears. They, they stream down our cheek. We, we cry because we're so grieved over the loss that we have. The Apostle Paul says that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of attitude, that's the appropriate attitude that you should have had. I want you to notice in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 at verse 21, the apostle is writing to the same group of folks. They, they did not get all of their problems worked out. They did get some of them worked out. The apostle Paul writes chapter or 2 Corinthians and, and he's trying to continue to encourage them to, to get all, everything worked out in the way that it should be. But he says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul had given them an opportunity in 1 Corinthians to straighten up. He's writing again in 2 Corinthians. He reminds them, he says, when I come, he said, I don't want to have to do this. God may humble me in this sense, but, but I may have to cry over you. I may have to mourn over some of you because you had not repented. That's what Paul pointed back to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's the attitude that, that these brothers and sisters should have had, that they should have mourned because this man that's mentioned here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they should have mourned over the fact that he had gone astray. They should have shed tears over the fact that this man was not doing what was appropriate, what was right, what God would allow him to do. He said you should have shed tears over that. Rather than being arrogant and being tolerant, you should have been crying over this kind of thing that's happening in your midst. 
I'm not sure that we sometimes recognize the fact that sin grieves God. Just one verse, Psalm 78, verse number 40. The psalmist there writes these words. He says in that psalm, How often they rebelled, talking about the children of Israel, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They grieved because they rebelled against him because they sinned. Second Samuel chapter 19 uses that word that's found there in the book of Psalm 78 verse 40 in regard to David himself. In Psalm or Second Samuel chapter 19 verses 1 and 2, the, the army of Israel had won a great battle. They'd put down a rebellion against King David. They had won, and there was a celebration that was going on according to the passage, except for the fact that the celebration was marred by the death of the son of David. Absalom was one of the instigators of the rebellion, and he had been killed. And as a result of that, the Bible says that all of this, the celebration going on, but the king, David, grieved over the loss of his son. Same word that's used for God when people sin. David grieved over the loss of his son. How many have experienced the loss of a loved one? A child, a husband, a wife, a grandparent, a friend, someone's close. You know how it torture your heart because all of us have lost someone but when there's sin among God's people it tears his heart out and Paul says that's the kind of attitude that we're to have when there's sin amongst us unrepented of sin we're not to tolerate it we're to grieve we're to mourn over that you see when one Sins when a brother or sister sins and refuses to repent, it ought to hurt us as badly as the death of a friend. That's what Paul says. It ought to hurt us as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It ought to hurt us that bad. As you read the rest of what is said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's necessary for us to understand that whatever action follows is to be taken in accordance with that mourning, with that attitude that is to be portrayed here. But what is the action that the Apostle Paul commands here in this passage? Well, we go on to verse number 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, 
You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You know, as I read that, I'm, I'm reminded of something that takes place in our own day and time. Folks are hesitant to, to act against sinful actions because they have misunderstood the concept that's taught in the book of Matthew, judge not. We like to quote that, and we like to focus on that first couple of words there, judge not, and sometimes we'll even add on that you be not judged. There, there's a, a grave misunderstanding of that passage amongst many folks in our world today, and even among Christians in our world today, in regard to that passage. You know, a lot of folks want to quote that and stop reading in Matthew. They never get to John chapter 7, verse 24, where the idea of judging is again addressed in that passage. And in, and in John chapter 7, at verse 24, the very idea that's presented in the book of Matthew is again mentioned here. He says, do not judge. But don't stop there. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see, Jesus makes it clear, John records it for us, that he's not forbidding making wise choices and decisions and deciding that something is right or wrong. He says, don't be too harsh in it. Take into consideration the facts, and judge with right, depending upon the translation you're reading from, judge with righteous judgment. You see, it's not optional, according to that passage, that we judge. It's not forbidden, and we are, as a matter of fact, commanded to judge against things that are wrong. We're to judge with right judgment. But you know what? Paul made it clear in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that the judgment had already been passed. In the case that's being addressed there, the judgment had been passed by God. He was simply relaying the message from God. The judgment had already been passed by God. It was wrong. But then if you look on down in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, You'll notice that Paul again picks up that idea of judging in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders, those who are outside the church? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Carry out the activity, the action that God has demanded. But I want you to notice again there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, that when you are assembled, when you come together as the church, that there are two specific things that, that are stated there. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, when, we, when you're there by His authority, you're to do this action by his authority. And then later on in that same verse, verse number 4, it's to be done with the full power 
of our Lord Jesus. You see, the action is both with the full authority and with the full power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The putting away the person, the purging of the leaven of the one who has sinned. And so, the idea of judge not, it's misunderstood and misinterpreted by many. And here, it's very clear that action must be taken according to God's Word. A couple of things here that we need to be reminded of. What the Apostle says, he says, when you're together and you're acting with the full authority and with the full power of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says you are to deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Paul, what do you mean by that? Sounds awfully harsh. It sounds really bad to deliver the sinner to Satan. You know, I think what we need to understand is simply this. We're either in the kingdom of God or we're in the kingdom of Satan. Jesus died so that we could be delivered from the kingdom of darkness, rather Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, and translated into the kingdom of God. We, we leave the rule of the devil and come under the rule of God. That's, that's what it's all about. We're in one or the other. We're in the kingdom of God or we're in the kingdom of Satan. We're in one or the other. Who decides? The answer to that is in the book of Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know, Paul writes, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You see, Paul indicates that you and I, as individuals, we're the one who truly decides which kingdom we're going to be in because we decide which king we're going to follow. Whoever you present yourself to, to be obedient to, that's what he says in Romans chapter 6, you become that one's slave. Now, having said that, here's what Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If a person is bound and determined to serve Satan, God says, hand them over. If a person has chosen the path of sin and they refuse the path of God, God says it's our responsibility to hand them over to Satan. Matter of fact, God does the same thing. If you go to Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28, three times in Romans chapter 1, there's a phrase that's used, God gave them up. When they made their choice, refused to listen to God, God gave them up. He let them suffer the consequences of the path that they had chosen. And so he says, deliver them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does he mean by the destruction of the flesh? Do you realize 
that the first instance of church discipline was carried out by God himself, Acts chapter 5. God required a life, two lives as a matter of fact in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira Sapphira lied to God God struck both of them dead we can't carry out discipline in that way today but Wayne Jackson has an interesting paragraph in regard to this matter he writes this he says turn the man over to Satan in other words back into the world community of debauchery that he may reap the consequences of his rebellion. Now here's this, his parenthetical statement. He says, whatever physical and or emotional disadvantages that might involve. To leave the safety, the love, the care of the Lord's church and go back to the sinful way of the world, which brings nothing but heartache. That they may reap the consequences of uh, reap the consequences of his rebellion along with distressing estrangement from a warm, loving association with the church. Under such circumstances of distress, if there were a remnant of conscience remaining, the rogue brother might well learn to destroy his baser fleshly urges and thus be reclaimed by the Savior's cause. To leave the love and care of the Lord's church, to go back into the world, to suffer the, the consequences of broken homes, broken hearts, broken lives. The person has any shred of confidence or, or conscience left whatsoever. If the conscience has not been so seared with a hot iron that they refuse, when they lose the love of the Lord, perhaps they will come back as did the prodigal son to his father. Deliver the sinner to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, not a literal death, but of the fleshly lust, the fleshly desires, the determination to do what I want to do regardless that it might die a death. We're running out of time this morning, but what is the reaction of the church? Again, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 11. Paul writes and says, Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Two, two phrases there. Do not associate with anyone not even to the point of sharing a common meal with them. Romans chapter 16, verse number 17, again, Paul addresses a similar matter. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid them. The words translated, the word translated avoid them, 
literally means to turn away from, to keep aloof from, to shun one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, at verse number 6. Again, Paul writes and says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Again, the, the, the definition of the word that's used here, keep away from, means to remove oneself, withdraw oneself, to abstain from familiar contact with one. In other words, as one writer says, we're not to be mingled up among, have no interchange of hospitality which could imply a brotherly recognition. Again, another says there is to be no encouragement given in any way to the one who is committing sin that would acknowledge that that person is right. That's a hard thing to do, folks. Very difficult thing to do. To sever the relationship, to cut it off. Not even to have social interaction but that's what God says must happen. Let me suggest to you this morning five things that withdrawing fellowship from a person is not. Number one, withdrawing fellowship does not mean that the church is interested in making someone suffer. That's not what the withdrawal of fellowship is about. We're not... You don't do that just so that you can cause hurt and heartache on a person. Yes, they're to learn to put away the fleshly desires to suffer the consequences, but as the church, that's not our goal. We don't want to see anyone suffer. We're to have the mind of God. We want every person to be saved. Secondly, it's not vengeance toward the offender. The purpose of withdrawing fellowship from someone is not just because you've got a vengeful heart. That you want to get back and retaliate. Number three, withdrawing fellowship does not mean that one withdrawn from becomes an enemy, though. We are to admonish that person as a brother or a sister. We are to not treat them as an enemy, but we are to try to teach them and win them back. Number four, withdrawing fellowship does not mean, quote unquote, the church has condemned an individual to hell. Sometimes that's the attitude that's taken, well, you know, they, they, they said I'm going to hell. They've condemned me there. Only two people can do that. Only two individuals. God, number one, who makes all the rules. And number two, the individual who either chooses to obey God or disobey Him. The church simply follows what God said. And then finally, number five, the church, or withdrawing fellowship, does not mean that just a public announcement before the congregation has been made. There is to be no fellowship of that person. 
That's what God said. 1 Corinthians 5.11, Romans 16, verse 17, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, at verse number 6. All of it's with a heavy heart, with a tear on the cheek. Last of all this morning, we have to remember the reason. It's threefold, according to the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, at verse number 5, you're to deliver this man, in that case, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Notice what's in yellow. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's for the salvation of the sinner, for their own good. Number two, for the cleanness of the church. Verses 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good, Paul says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Look at the next part, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you, are, uh, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We're really participating, as it were, in the, in the symbolic Old Testament Passover. Christ was the lamb that's been sacrificed. But in a spiritual sense today in the church, we're like they were in getting rid of the leaven. We must get rid of the leaven of sin. Not only in our individual lives, but when it's found within the church and a person refuses to repent, then it has to be purged so that the whole lump is not contaminated. And so it's for the cleanness. Cleanse out the old leaven, the cleanness of the church. But number three, it's for the standards of the saints. Next verse, verse number eight. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Remember, he's just spoken about the Passover. Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's really the standards that we as Christians are to go by. It's similar to what Jesus said to the woman at the well when he was talking about worship. He spoke about how God seeks some to worship him. And what does he say about those who worship him? They must worship him in spirit and in truth. With the right attitude, sincerity here, and with the right action, authority, the truth, God's Word. And so that's the standards that we as Christians must bear. When Christians sin and they refuse to repent, it is a sad occasion. And the church is instructed what to do. We either follow what God said, seeking to save the soul of a sinner, to maintain the purity of the church and to stand for the standards of the Lord. Or we don't. No discipline for the moment is pleasant. That's what Paul wrote in the book of Hebrews. It's not easy. It's not fun. But it's right and necessary.
And as the Lord's people, we always, always must remember that. Maybe you're here this morning and there is something that's separating you from God. Don't grieve the heart of God. Make it right today. If you've never obeyed the gospel, have your sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have, but something stands between you and Him that you need to make right today, why not do it right now? As together we stand.